Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. It's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Today we've got another very inspiring medical student, Anna Harvey, so let's get cracking. This last year, Anna interrupted her studies at King's College London and spent the year working at the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, as an editorial scholar, overseeing the student content at the journal. How unbelievably exciting! Anna is also interested in widening access and participation in medicine and is a founding member of the National Student Widening Participation Working Group. Her clinical areas of interest are in sexual health and obstetrics and gynaecology and she has recently been appointed to the National Committee of the British Undergraduate Society of Obs and Gyne. Outside of medicine, her pre-COVID life involves spending possibly too much time in London's independent music venues, which she hopes to be able to visit again soon. Anna is also a part of the Sharp Scratch team, a podcast for medical students and new doctors by the BMJ. It covers questions and topics that medical school never answer. Topics have included surviving the first night shift and how to treat someone who is racist or sexist to should doctors have tattoos. And what can you do on social media? The podcast is a refreshing and authentic look into the world of medical education and life as a junior doctor. And here at Nutritank, we believe it should be on the essential list for every medical student. So, hey Anna, so lovely to have a fellow med student on the podcast. You're actually the first podcast guest who is also a podcast host. So, quite cool to have you on the other end, really. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit strange for me, um, seeing like your setup and stuff. It's kind of similar to the way we do Sharp Scratch, but there's a few differences. So, um, but usually we, we record Sharp Scratch like, you know, pre-COVID, like in the studio and stuff as well, which is mm. super cool. Um, so doing it remotely is like quite a new thing for us. Um, and we're still working out some kinks. Trust me, I've had many a kink. I had a speaker... Um, a dietitian who I'm very close with and she didn't realise but her twins were having a um, tap dance lesson, a virtual tap dance lesson in the house oh and she'd forgotten about it. It was one of those things that you just can't go ahead and do the podcast even in another room because it vibrates through the whole house. Yeah, I It's working out those like, virtual kinks. I can always hear like my chair squeaking, like birds singing outside because <laughs> I've got this mic and it's like super sensitive and it picks everything up. 
Yeah, we just have to roll with the punches and it makes it all a bit more human. So, Anna, you're a very interesting woman. Tell us a bit about your life as a medical student and how you became the BMJ Editorial Scholar. Yeah, so um, I am a, well, I was a final year medical student at King's before I interrupted my studies last August. Um, so I've been at the BMJ for a year and it's a kind of year-long um yeah, editorial training position, basically. Um, I'm supposed to be going back to med school, um, like, very imminently, um, which is exciting, but also kind of nerve-wracking. Um, but, yeah, I have always been... This is one of those things that you, like... It's a, it's a kind of personal statement to you kind of thing to say, but it is actually true. Um, I've always been, like, really interested in writing, and I used to actually do a lot of, like, music writing when I was at school, so I wrote for, like local like music magazines and stuff um I'm from a place called Margate in Kent which has got like quite a nice little music scene mm. so I did quite a bit of stuff around that and then when I came to uni decided I wanted to do medicine and came to uni I really wanted to kind of keep that um keep that kind of aspect of my life really um so literally my first day at med school I was lucky enough to go to King's where there's a, a magazine for medical students called the GKT Gazette and um, yeah my first day at uni I went and signed up um, wrote some actually recently I was uh, like sorting out all my notes from med school ready to go back in August and I found some of the like early articles that I wrote <laughs> when I was in, like first year and oh my god I was just like so angry about things like I wrote this really angry article about the, the UK cat and how it's like not worth <laughs> money and stuff like that have you seen an evolution in your writing then oh definitely definitely and particularly this year at the bmj mm. like it's improved me as a writer so much um but yeah so i started writing for uni staff eventually became like the editor-in-chief of that uni magazine and like honestly if i if you think about writing like i have done every single like type of writing you can think of because i always just jumped on any kind of opportunity to do it so I've done like marketing copywriting, I've done, uh, I've written scripts for like medical education videos and stuff. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, like loads of really weird stuff. Like I always ended up getting myself into like slightly odd situations where I was like, how have I ended up doing this? <laughs> um, I think that's just the nature of like saying yes to stuff. Exactly. And if you're passionate about something, you're just going to chase those opportunities and they just kind of come to you. The universe kind of just brings them to you. Yeah, it's really weird how that happens. Mm, totally. So tell us um, a little bit about your experience at medical school. So um, you're at King's. And so would you say you've always kind of wore, but worn both hats, the kind of science hat and the arts hat? guess it's kind of I don't want to be like super trite and cheesy like right at the beginning of the podcast but go for it I was kind of interested in medicine is because medicine is like so much about stories mm. and I always liked science as well and I thought you know this is this is a great way to kind of combine those two things that I really like um is you know my kind of basically nosiness about people right and their stories and and the things that have happened to them and yeah science which I was kind of just found interesting um so I think, like, I very much always kind of saw medicine as being a bit more arty than science which I don't know if that's, like, the right thing or not. Um, There's but, the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, 
then I, uh, between my second and third years, I, I intercalated in history and medicine. And, and in fact, actually, during that year, I, I stayed as far away from history as I could. I did some really interesting modules just from the sort of humanities, like, catalogue at King's. So I know a lot about um, ancient Japanese tattooing practices, if anyone's interested in that. Um, Why not? It's a fun dinner party chat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I just, I guess I suffer with the affliction of being, like, quite interested in a lot of things. Mm. Um so yeah, I've always like done a lot of stuff sort of alongside um, medicine, and I think a lot of it like doing interesting stuff outside medicine makes you like better in medicine as well. Mm. I think because that's what I wanted to ask you about. So, how do you kind of feel the arts fits into medicine, and whether it's you know something that you're going to do to better your practice, like. Your history of medicine degree I did a um, we had a chat about this before we started the pod I did a medical humanities degree last year at Imperial and I found that it really helped kind of allow that other half of my brain to thrive but also helped inform me um, and how I wanted to practice as a future doctor so how do you feel that kind of the arts and writing and whatever your creative outlet is kind of a helps you as a person with your mental health, your resilience, and also perhaps can help inform how you wish to practice and interact with humans. Because like you say, medicine is all about getting to know people set in front of you, the storytelling aspect. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, like, for me, I always found that, like, the, the pressure in medicine to kind of always have a right answer is something that I think makes people quite uncomfortable and I think that's often you know when I go I obviously like talk to a lot of medical students I go out into med schools and and do workshops and things often about publishing um and you know journalism writing whatever and and I think that that's something people really struggle with is to get their head around the fact that there is going to be times where you don't know what to do and potentially there is no right answer and I think that's a real that's a real big thing that studying the humanities has, I think, helped me deal with. I mean, again, like, as we were discussing kind of a little bit earlier, um, just allowing yourself to be a little bit more comfortable in that space of, like, okay, I don't really know what the right answer is here. And I guess the other thing is, like, critical appraisal of evidence. Mm-hmm. Like, we kind of... It's something that I think gets mentioned a lot, or at least in my experience at med school, it was mentioned a lot, but no one ever really taught me how to do it. And actually, when I went into um, my history of medicine degree, I did a, a module all about, like, appraising historical evidence. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's a little bit different to, um, you know, appraising a, a scientific paper, but a lot of the, the concepts are there. Like, you know, you've got to think about, like, who the audience is, um the beliefs of the person who's writing the the piece or the, the piece of evidence or whatever. Um, so I think that's been really useful as well. And I think it's quite short-sighted to feel like you can't get anything valuable out of the humanities because I did get, like, quite a few, like, snarky comments. Mm, me too, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, lots of people saying, like, oh, I don't understand why you're doing that. Like, that's not going to be relevant to you as a, as a medic. And I was like, well, I'm, too, I, I'm not going to argue with you about this, but <laughs> uh, I think it is. So uh, we'll, we'll stick with that. I couldn't agree more with you. And funnily enough, um, 
because I left Bristol for the year to go and interclate at Imperial, which, as you know, is one of those very scientific unis. And um, it was only the second year of this medical humanities degree that they were offering to their med students. And um, from the rest of Imperial, and especially the rest of the medics who interclate in um, management or biochem or you name it, um, it was a very funny degree for Imperial to offer to the students and seen as a DOS, which, you know, basically for those, that, that word is just like, you know, seen as a chill. Um, when it's completely not the case at all, I actually found it really intense. Like, yes, my contact hours were lower, than medicine but it was a really intense course because you're giving so much of yourself to um, to the projects because it's all about you being an individual rather than being part of a system like you know medical education learning all the appropriate things to graduate with all the right requirements and competencies as a doctor with medical humanities it's more you're giving all your energy and yourself into the project because it's your opinions and you mould how you want to write that essay. Um, we did a lot of artwork, you know, produce that artwork and that kind of thing. So I actually found it more um, energy consuming perhaps in some ways. And um, I did find it strange how people would say, oh, it's such a DOS. Because at the end of the day, I found personally, I learned so many transferable skills from it when dealing with, like you say, Anna, the uncertainty, that grey area. And also, um, you know, we learnt so many skills around how to kind of interpret things that don't always have one answer, like you say. And we learnt about cultural competency and, you know, just really how to learn from loads of different people's stories and not see things like, you know, unidirectionally. Um, and so yeah, I'm with you yeah. there. I guess the other thing to say as well, like to anyone listening, is not all of your life has to be focused on developing skills for medicine, right? Mm. Like you can just do something because oh, you totally. it and you find it fun. Um, I think that was the other interesting thing that I uh, like, kind of attitude that I encountered, um, and actually around like a lot of the extracurricular stuff that I've done around writing and stuff. So like people are sort of like, why are you doing that? Like that doesn't get PubMed ID or you know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why you're gonna put this on your CV, and I'm like, yeah, but I enjoy, mm. I enjoy doing it. Like, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, completely. I mean, like for my diss, um, I literally wrote on cinema <laughs> because cinema has been one of my favourite things since I was a child, and I thought, oh, it's one of those opportunities that I can just go explore a complete different area that relates to medical humanities. So why not? <laughs> what did you do your dissertation on? I did my dissertation on women in psychedelic drug research and culture. Um, so basically, it was a it was a feminist lens on um, yeah the initial psychedelic drug research that was done in the early sixties was basically driven by women, but they've been essentially erased from right. the popular histories of the psychedelic movement. And then I also wrote a bit about um, how the counterculture, like the sixties counterculture. Um, excluded women and people of colour and how that was part of the reason why mm. they never really achieved any of the things that they wanted to do. Um, so it's really interesting and I got to go to like the archive, welcome archives and like mm. look at 
original letters from this woman, um, Betty Eisner, who I was, most of my dissertation was focused around. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a bit of a rogue choice, to be honest. I think my dissertation supervisor was a bit confused about why I wanted to write about it. So was I, actually, by the end. By the time I finished writing it, I was like, really not sure why I've written this, but it's done now, so. <laughs> <laughs> Something was in you though. wanted you to write it, though. That's cool. I think it is... Like you say, why not pick the rogue option? Why not pick something just a bit different to just kind of stretch yourself, learn something new? It doesn't all have to be related to medicine. And for all we know, something you've learned from it has gone into your subconscious and will help you in some way relate to people because you've looked at something different, you know, that's not part of the mainstream. Exactly. For sure. So, bouncing back to BMJ... Um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what it's like to actually work as one of the only or only medical students, as you say, within the BMJ as an editor? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my role is called the Editorial Scholar, which is kind of a fancy name for um, the sort of student editor, right? So I look after all of the content that the BMJ produces for students. So there's um, sort of written content, both on bmj.com and the BMJ Opinion website, which is a separate website. Um, we have a, an annual print issue, which comes out in September, which I've just like finally managed to file all my copy for, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, and we have our own social media channels. So BMJ Student has um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, which I run. Um, and of course we have podcast shop Scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, being a medical student at the BMJ is, is, has been a really interesting experience. Um, the next kind of most junior person is the editorial registrar Shivali and she is an F3 doctor um so I'm very much like the most junior person in the office um and yeah it's been a really interesting experience because you get a lot of like one-on-one time with the the senior editors which is absolutely amazing you know I've learned so much from them Mm. and that's both you know clinical editors who some of whom are also still doctors, you know, they practice one or two days a week, um, and also, you know, trained journalists. And I think that's like kind of the, the nice thing about the BMJ, as opposed to working for, you know, just like a straight academic journal, is that they also have that that kind of journalism side to it, the sort of magazine-y stuff. Mm. And that's really where a lot of my interest in writing lies. Um, and yeah, it's just been, it's just been really good. But I think it has been a bit of a challenge sort of coming from the clinical environment because Mm -hmm. you're always surrounded by like other med students, other junior doctors. There's quite a sort of, not like social, social, but you know, you, you go for coffee after ward round and like stuff like that. Um, and at the BMJ, there's a lot more kind of independent work, um, which is fine. Um, but I like talking to people as you can probably tell because Mm -hmm. I'm, just uh, <laughs> chatting with you um but that's why I guess like sharp scratch is is so nice because obviously pre-covid the you know we would basically take a whole day to record a couple of episodes and the, the panel members would come down and we'd go for lunch and stuff and it was like there was quite a social aspect to it as well um so I think that's been kind of something that's been a bit more challenging about it for mm. me and I have really missed seeing patients actually I um I'm really looking forward to to seeing some patients. Um, I've been doing some, like, 
because of COVID, I've actually had to have like a sort of phased return to uni. So I've been doing some sort of simulated virtual patients um, in the last couple of weeks. And thank goodness, like, like the history taking just like comes back to you. Um, <laughs> I was the first one in the group to um, take a history and I was like, oh my God, everyone in this group has like seen yeah. patients much more recently than I have. Um, but it was fine. So it's like, okay, it's like muscle memory. I know I had that same fear as well when I interrupted my studies, but it is muscle memory and people are really understanding as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think, you know, being at the BMJ is just an incredible opportunity and I do feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to, to be there this year. Um, it's like, again, I'm sounding super cheesy. So no, um, go for it. It genuinely like that... It, it was it's like a dream job right mm. you know, I get paid as well wow like, yeah that is a dream job <laughs> <laughs> writing away speaking to really inspiring people and then getting paid all while being a student and not qualified yet it's so yeah. amazing and um do you know who you're passing the torch to yet uh for next year have you been involved in that Maybe by the time this by the time this comes out, we may well know. But um, yeah, we're interviewing at the moment. Um, our recruitment process is in full swing, so uh, that's cool. Exciting stuff. So back to Sharp Scratch. Um, your brainchild. Um, it's not really my. Brainchild. Well, you're not brainchild. You're temporary <laughs> brainchild that you sadly have to. Yeah, you you're passing that on to someone else. But could you just tell our listeners a little bit about Sharp Scratch, um, when it started, what the BMJ um, wanted its aims to be, and yeah, tell us about some of your favourite episodes to record. Yeah, of course. So I must say here that Sharp Scratch was not um, kind of, I was passed Sharp Scratch by my predecessor, Laura, um, and Laura really did all of the kind of groundwork um, and sort of, you know, the setup for the episodes um, and pass that on to me. So really, a lot of this, a lot of the credit needs to go to Laura. And um, Laura's amazing. Everyone, you should go and follow Laura on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was passed on to me when I kind of took over um, Laura's job, sort of this time last year actually. Um, and yeah, essentially we talk about the hidden curriculum of medicine, which. Um, this, if anyone has listened to Sharp Scratch, this is basically the spiel that I say at the beginning of each episode, right? So we talk about um, things that you want to know to be a good doctor, but they don't necessarily mm. teach you at medical school. And um, I think the reason why that was chosen was because we wanted a way to frame the things that we were talking about without, you know, repeating content that was done in like other areas of the BMJ or even stuff that, you know, people get from their med schools, because, you know, why would, why would people go to the BMJ for something that they could just get off their, like, you know, virtual learning environment, stuff like that, and um, I think for me, like, coming into it was really interesting, because it was actually something that I was quite interested in before, so I'd done a project on, um, basically, like, perceptions of success amongst medical students, Mm -hmm. and I'd, I'd, um, explored this idea of the hidden curriculum, and, um, I don't know if you're planning on asking me about this later, but um, I'm quite interested in like winding participation um, and winding access to medicine, and it's something that I think kind of like goes into that quite a lot because if you're from a background where 
you know, maybe like no one in your family has been to uni, like let alone med school, it's quite difficult to pick up on some of those like unspoken rules of medicine mm. because there are so many of them and that, that's basically what the hidden curriculum is. Um, it's all the, the unspoken rules and like the culture of medicine. Um, and really it's just like, there's actually some evidence that suggests, you know, students do want to talk about this stuff more openly and that they would mm. find that valuable. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where the idea of like the theme of, of Sharp Scratch came from. Sure. And so tell us a little bit about your passion episodes. What ones have really just surprised you or just made you think in a complete different way? Like who have you spoken to that's just really inspired you? So, I mean, going back to the like hidden curriculum thing, and I, I actually genuinely like bang on about this too much. So if you, if I'm like talking too much, please stop me. But um, yeah, basically when I did this project, like before I even came to the BMJ, I read this amazing paper about the hidden curriculum and it had been, I think it was actually done at my med school, um, but essentially this um, sociologist called Heidi Lemp um, had written all about the hidden curriculum and this was like a number of years ago, you know, at least 10 years ago. And I remember reading it and thinking like absolutely nothing has changed, like mm. it's, med school is exactly the same um, and it's always been like... That's the geekiest thing ever, isn't it? To have, like, favourite academic papers. Not at um, all! We're med eds, it's fine! <laughs> it's been... It's, it's one of my favourite, like, med ed academic papers, and it was the first time I had, you know, this this idea of the hidden curriculum put into a sort of conceptual framework that I could think, okay, this is a way that I can express what I've been feeling to other people. Mm. And actually, we had Heidi on the podcast recently in our episode about competition and, and the competitive nature of medicine. And... Yeah, it was just like, I was totally fangirling, honestly. It was like really embarrassing. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it was just really, really cool to actually speak to her. Um, so that's been one of my favourite, like, recent ones. I guess, like, because I've done, I feel like I've done so many now, it's like difficult to remember some of them. I also really, um, one that I found really powerful, which I was really, really nervous um, about doing was our racism in medicine issue. Yeah, and that's actually how I came across you guys. Um, I was really taken by it. I thought it was brilliant. And, the, yeah, the three different voices and then discussing Professor Williams' work. It was it was amazing. You should, you should be very proud. Yeah, so that was to go with the BMJ's racism in medicine issue, which was, you know, a huge, huge, obviously, mm. huge collection of articles and, and we really, really wanted to, to do something to go with that. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, that was a really powerful experience for me, I think, um, especially, you know, hearing from Chidera and Raihan about mm. their experiences. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of like ones that have changed the way that I see things, that's, that's probably one of them, especially doing the research around that, like you're saying with, um, Professor Williams work and reading that and, um, yeah. No, absolutely. And um, so how do you feel right now as a medical student? I know there's a lot going on um, in my medical school at Bristol. I'm not sure if you know what's going on at King's, but how do you feel things are at the moment with, um, you know, decolonizing the, decolonizing the curriculum and, you know, how biased our medical education has actually been? what's been going on at King's because I've been at the BMJ so I've not been so um, sure. in the loop but I have um, 
I've commissioned a couple of articles in the last week about, um, you know, the different kind of the open letters and the student activism and the grassroots things that have been going on. And I think, you know, it's it's a bit pathetic really to say it's long overdue, but it is long overdue. Um, it's something that I've been aware of for quite a long time, particularly in my kind of clinical area of interest is Ops and Gynae. And, um, you know, you, you only have to, to look at the Embrace reports and mm. the reports on maternal mortality to show, you know, to see that this pervades every single aspect of medicine. Mm. Um, and I think, I think the issue that we have at the moment with all of these open letters and, and things like that, which is amazing, but, you know, kind of in my opinion, it really shouldn't fall onto students mm. to be doing this kind mm. of like unpaid, you Activism. know, very emotionally mm. ta- taxing, you know. Mm. Lots of people, people aren't getting, you know, it's not like people get time out of their studies to do this stuff. They're doing it alongside, you know, being a medical student. And um, and that's something actually we, we, that I've commissioned an article on as well. Um, so hopefully those will be ready, like, relatively soon. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's great that these things are being kind of spoken about a bit more openly. Obviously, mm. we have spoken about it previously like the racism medicine podcast um and we also had a an episode on you know how you can address a patient who's racist or sexist um so i guess it's something that at bmj student we have been you know we we have had some conversations about Mm. um but yeah definitely kind of international events have like brought that to the to the forefront of our minds and start thinking about like more concrete things that we can do to to try and kind of undermine some of this discrimination yeah and you say such powerful stuff and it's similar conversations I've been having with my friends um at uni and also with um all the people in the Nietzsche tank team why should the burden fall on those who are discriminated against to educate others it's so unbelievably emotionally and physically draining and it really is down to everyone. It's you know, anti-racism is everyone's responsibility, and it's yeah, it is just amazing how much, yeah, how much is being done just by students and those who are directly affected. Yeah, um, and I was talking to mm. someone about a, um, an article they wanted to write about um, you know, reflecting on their own internalized biases and how you know, at medical school we're sort of often taught of taught that race is like kind of a risk factor and it's something that you should kind of take account take into account when you're taking a history and things like that and how quickly you can internalize that and not think about actually interrogating why that is yeah um and he he was a, a white guy and he wanted to write about it and he said oh i'm not sure if i'm the right person to to write about it and i was like well you are because we all we all need to be thinking about these things. Like, it's exactly as you say, you know, it shouldn't just fall on, um, you know, marginalised groups to to try and, like, force us to, to see mm. things um, in in the right way. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, a, like, an unbelievable burden. Yeah. Um, no, it so truly is, yeah. <laughs> hopefully that article will go up soon as well. That's amazing, and you're going to link me all these articles because I want to share them all. They, they sound... Yeah. Yeah, tremendous. Um, really worthwhile. So, um, exactly what we were talking about. 
and how it can become ingrained, you know, this idea of learning that race is a risk factor, um, whether we're talking about South Asian groups and diabetes or hypertension in Afro-Caribbean groups, it really is something that needs interrogating and, you know, that is why we're seeing all these petitions now come to light with medical students or junior doctors putting them forward around decolonising our medical curriculum. So like you say, your interest is um, OBS and gynae and, you know, we've been taught at medical school <laughs> that um, women um, from uh, different ethnic backgrounds, such as Afro-Caribbean, have an increased mortality rate. And yet we're taught it as a straight fact, but we do, like you say, need to look into the social reasons as to why this is. And um, yeah, I wanted to kind of get your take on what other topics you think are important in medical school that particularly lack representation around um, black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to recognise that it pervades every aspect of medicine, right? Mm. Medicine is built on you know, the practice of medicine, a lot of the instruments that we use, um, a lot of the, you know, surgical procedures that are named after people who, um, you know, have committed atrocities against... Sins. Um, yeah, yeah, well, that's the one that I've been kind of mm. looking at a lot recently, obviously, with being interested in Ops and Gynae, mm. and I think it's quite easy to sort of paper over and say, oh, okay, we're going to put out, like... Uh, you know, a textbook where we talk about, you know, kind of different presentations in people with different levels of, like, skin pigmentation, right? Mm. And that's amazing. Like, that work needs to be done because we have to be able to, to recognise those recognize those signs and, and symptoms in, in people who are, you know, our, our whole patient demographic. Like, it's just unacceptable that mm. at the moment you... Dermatology, it's the most yeah. underrepresented. That, yeah, that's what I want to talk exactly. to you about. That's what exactly. the petition is. It's about dermatology teaching and how we literally are not taught the black or Asian counterpart of these skin manifestations. It's crazy. Yeah, there's a couple of great resources out there. Um, so there's an Instagram account who I've been following for a while called Brown Skin Matters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really, really useful. And um, there's also recently, uh, again, a student, a student has led this work, which is fantastic. But, you know, I really kind of hope that there's been some mechanism for him to get some, you know, reimbursement for his time or, you know, his effort um, has put together a, um, a book called Mind the Gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So we'll link all these resources to our listeners because I think these are very important to disseminate to as wide of audience as possible. And um, yeah, I think there's some. I mean, there's some really cool work going on out there. Um, but I think it's important, yeah, to recognise that this kind of does pervade like every aspect of medicine. And focusing on dermatology, I think, is potentially a way of sort of making it look like we're doing something, but. Right. It's really a very small, you know, mm. it's very a very small aspect of like the entire issue. Um, but obviously, I wouldn't, you know, this is all just based on like my experience talking to other medical students. Um, 
and yeah it's I'm not an expert in this at all um so uh yeah this is just based on like conversations I've had with people and the experience that I've had at the BMJ um working on you know things like the racism in medicine issue mm. and um you know attending events like the um the most recent international women's day event at the royal college of box and gynae was was all about race um so that was a that was a really interesting event to to go to as well um but again yeah i'm not an expert so no but you've got some wisdom to impart doesn't matter <laughs> So, um, back to one of the topics that you've told me you're very passionate about. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the article that the BMJ wrote about the disadvantages faced by poorer medical students? So, it comes back to the topic of widening participation. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, I, myself and a friend of mine, um, wrote that article which is in BMJ opinion um, and it kind of went alongside a couple of other articles that um, were published in the same issue about um, the kind of class divides in medicine and things like that and um, this is all kind of like in the same sort of vein because it, there's a lot of intersectionality here right um, but yeah it's, it's something that I've always been kind of I guess again I'm being cheesy passionate about interested in um I think if you look at the stats like I think the Sutton Trust says that um you know 80% of medical applicants come from 20% of schools um so you know there's there's clearly huge areas where you know people just aren't given the access to medical school be that because they never even think about it because there's something called the aspiration gap um or you know they don't have the resources to actually mm. put an application in or their application isn't competitive because they have not had access to you know careers advice um at their school and things like that so i mean again i am not an expert it's a really complicated topic mm. um, but it's just something that i have kind of learned about through experience and i am part of a sort of working group I think it's called yeah. about um, winding participation and we do kind of various um so one of the things we did most recently was write an open letter to medical schools considering um putting their interviews online and um just kind of asking them to consider the impact that that might have on people with kind of diverse home situations you know for instance I when I was at um applying for medical school I didn't have my own bedroom so mm. how was I supposed to do an interview um in a in a quiet you know secluded place when I I, I didn't have my own room and that's just like a very very mm. you know simple thing to think about but actually if you are someone who has always had you know a quiet safe space to you know go on a laptop that belongs to you you might not think about that like that's fine um it it's it's not really you know people make judgments based on their experience don't they so I think it's just sometimes about pointing that out to people and saying look have you have you considered that some people might not have internet in their home or some people might not own a laptop they mm. might just own a phone um so yeah that's kind of like some of the work that that we do um I guess ultimate the ultimate aim is just to to make sure that anyone who 
has the skills and the ability and the passion for medicine like can become a doctor and obviously there's there's loads and loads of uh, kind of systemic changes that might need to happen to to make that happen but um I do think there's value in individuals um and, and groups of students like yeah. doing work as well that was really long and rambly I'm no sorry. no you covered so much ground and I just want to unpack a little bit about what you've said and I think Everything you're saying, it all just comes down to inclusivity and awareness of other people's circumstances and not having, you know, a white older man in charge of this working group who has their own internal biases and um, maybe come from privilege and doesn't really understand the different backgrounds that other individuals come from. So I think you've addressed it all really well. I just wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about the term you use, the aspiration gap and fill everyone in on that yeah so I mean it basically uh I don't know what the like official definition of of it is but um it basically describes like the phenomenon that you know if you're from a certain background your parents are professionals you've been to university it might always be you know something that's just expected of you like like you will go to university that kind of the aspiration to do that is always there I'm not saying that's right or wrong, you know, obviously university is not, it's not for everyone and some people I'm sure feel under a lot of pressure to, to go to university when they might not necessarily want to, but there are also people who, you know, if no one in their family has ever been to uni, no one, no one really from their school, like, necessarily would go to uni or particularly to study something like medicine, right, mm. um, the, the aspiration's just not there. So that's kind of the, like the first step that we have to take, like before we can even empower these, you know, I don't like to use the word kids, but young people to apply for medicine and, and, and get into medical school, we have to be able to, you know, have that baseline level of them believing that they can. Um, and for a lot of young people, that's that's just not true, um, especially in certain areas of the country. And... Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what the, the aspiration gap as well. Mm. So we want to narrow that aspiration gap and make sure that everyone has the, you know, is, is empowered to have that aspiration to do, you know, whatever it is they want to do, really. Obviously, I'm specifically interested in medicine because uh, that's mm. what I do, but, um, you know, anything, anything that they want. Mm. And do you think that there are enough um, role models for young people to look up to who have come from similar backgrounds you know are these people online in the public eye can they actually access these role models um you know if you just take marcus uh, rashford at the moment with his amazing work he's doing for food insecurity and uh, school meals for children you know he's now a famous um you know high-earning footballer who came from an underprivileged background and is doing such incredible activist work so you know young people can look up to him what about in medicine what do you think about that I think that's a really interesting question um I think they're there I think that similar to a lot of um groups that are perhaps more um underrepresented in medicine you know it may well be that these people from certain backgrounds have a lot of other pressures on them that mean that they're not necessarily able to, you know, for instance, to give you an example, 
one of the things that we wrote about in our piece um, is, you know, if you want to do academic medicine, you have to go to conferences to present your work. Mm-hmm. And some of those conferences are like, you know, they're, they're like thousands of pounds. Um, and if you don't have that money, then you mm. just can't go. And bursaries really are, you know, they often pay lip service to it, but they really are kind of quite few and far between. Um, so, you know, the, and if you're the whole system that promotes you through medicine, like it's based on getting points for like publications and presentations and stuff. And I think particularly when people are at medical school as well, you know, if you've got to spend 30 hours a week on top of your medical studies working because you've got to send money home or you know your parents can't give you any money and you know a student loan only goes so far you're not gonna have time to write a paper or you know design a poster and present it um so I think there's a lot of barriers there and I think often people kind of think oh you know once you've got into medical school everything's going to be fine um one of the stories that I reference in the in the piece which actually happened to me was um I my NHS bursary they basically lost all of my um documentation Mm. and I didn't I didn't get any money and I was getting right to I had like I was right at the end of my overdraft I had a credit card like I had nothing and I rang them up and I was like, "You like someone needs to do something because I can't pay my rent." And she was like, "Oh, don't worry, you'll be a doctor soon, and then you'll be fine." I was like, "Well, firstly, that doesn't help me now. <laughs> Secondly, even as a junior doctor, like there's a lot of costs, and particularly if you're supporting family members and things like that, like it's quite, it could be quite quick to see that that um, salary, you know, disappear. Um, so I think there's just a lot of like." there's a lot of assumptions about the kind of person who is a doctor right you think doctor you think like tall white male like in a suit and a white coat and um that's just not true that's just not doctors are like doctors are everyone Um, absolutely maybe more so those kind of people at the moment but it has got a bit kind of medicine is way more diverse than it than it was in the past um so I don't know. I think I think there's just a lot of barriers, and you know, privilege works in different dimensions. Anna, those are such interesting points, and it really is such a big conversation to be had, and there's so many areas that need tackling. Uh, so going back to what you were saying earlier with this working group that you're a part of, um, is it a national working group and? What, who's leading it? What senior people are leading it? How are medical schools being targeted to have widening participation programmes? Yeah, so we're the... Um, I sit on the kind of student um, committee of the... Wait, I need to double-check the name on Twitter because I always get this wrong. Um, I um, sit on the kind of student like arm of the National Medical Schools Widening Participation Forum. Um which is like a body that has people from, I think, like 20 medical schools sitting on it, and also people like the Medical Schools Council um, and, you know, UCAT and BMAT and um, people like that. Um, so we kind of represent the student voice, and, um, yeah, you can you can find out more about um, 
the forum on Twitter. They're very active on Twitter and they have kind of various initiatives. One of the things that the students particularly do is um, run a national conference every year, which this year is going to be online um, sometime in November. Um, but again, yeah, you should you should follow them on Twitter if you're if you're interested in wedding participation work. Definitely, and we'll link that for sure. So, Anne, how do you think medical schools can provide a more supportive environment? Um, you know, what are the solutions to current situation um, when it comes to inequity? Oh wow, you're asking me some big questions here. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, just to bracket this again with, I do definitely do not have the answers, um, all the answers. Um, but I think, you know, med schools are a bit more receptive these days to constructive criticism. But I mean, I think often the answer, particularly for, um, you know, students from, potentially more kind of disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds the answer is usually just money like mm. in in my opinion you know the student loan system is frankly ludicrous mm. um if you want to go to a medical school you will graduate with like what you know up to a hundred thousand pounds of debt like it's insane and also that debt is not enough for you to to live on day to day like i know for instance you know, the top amount, even if you get the top amount of student loan, it's only like £10,000 a year to live in London for a year. And if you're a medical student who's on clinical placement, it's really challenging to have a job on top of that. Mm. So I just think, you know, that the money just needs to be freed up for people so that they don't have to, you know, be coming into uni absolutely exhausted because they've worked, you know, until 2am at Tesco's the previous night because they need mm. to, otherwise they can't pay their rent. And I think, again, it, it comes back to kind of what we were saying about that assumption that a person who goes to medical school is from a certain background um, and people kind of assume that you won't need that kind of help. Um, and I think that's something that kind of fundamentally like needs to change about the culture of medicine um is assuming that everyone comes from from the same background and you know has parents mm. that can help them um and things like that and obviously a lot of people do and you know if your parents are happy to help you like that's awesome if they have the means to um but yeah for, for some people that's not true and, and it does mm. pose a lot of problems and i think money would be good yeah and <laughs> you're that's very simplistic though. no but it's you know your it's lived experience from i'm sure people you've had conversations with and things you've observed and you know that's almost sometimes more um uh profound the lived experience you've observed by fellow students than reading an academic paper about it so no thank you for your thoughts and yeah, you mentioned it's it's like as if you take the case study of like a student working in Tesco to the late hours of the morning um, to try and pay rent. It's not even just about rent. It's also something that's hardly spoken about because there's a bit of a stigma with it. Um, and we discuss it within the Nutritank team is student food poverty. And it's something that, you know, people don't really talk about because it's that, you know, people don't think about it that students can you know literally be living 
like of a can of beans for dinner or something like that mm. yeah I mean I know med students who have had to go to food banks and I think if you told people that like the general public I think they would be surprised mm. because again it comes it comes back to that assumption that everyone in medicine is like you know I guess like from a kind of middle class background maybe one of their parents is, a, is already a doctor and that I guess is very much is how it used to be in the past but it's not anymore and um yeah it's a it's a huge topic <laughs> mm, no it's a huge topic and I really hope that things are going to be done and you know um whether it's more attraction that needs to be kind of done in the area especially when it comes to student food poverty like maybe the bmj should commission a piece um <laughs> on that in particular because uh, you know if you can't nourish your mind and you're not able to um, go to sleep um and have enough sleep if you're working late shifts and you're not eating well and you're studying loads and you're meant to be looking after others it's you know, it's a recipe for disaster yeah and i think people would probably be like well if you're not sleeping well and you're not eating well it's probably because you're like out on the town all the time and stuff um but uh which i guess probably you know maybe it's true for some people but uh not for others and <laughs> yeah. um, so moving on from that topic um still kind of in line with diversity and inclusivity i was just wondering in light of june which is when we're recording this uh, being the month of Pride and the fact that Pride couldn't go through this year due to COVID. I was just wondering about, um, you know, what the BMJ's take is and if you've done any work with, um, you know, increasing the conversations around LGBTQ health workers and, um, you know, things like along those lines. Um, so, firstly, just to say, I have used my own, etc. Of course. <laughs> um, so, I do not represent um, the BMJs. Well, you know what I mean, like, if you're yeah, in charge yeah. of commissioning and you know what articles have been written in the past. Yeah, yeah. So, um, there's been some really interesting pieces. Actually, my, um, I'm sure I'm allowed to say this to you, uh, my print issue that's coming up um, is all about sex. So, um, we've got got several articles in there about, um, you know, how we can better serve our trans and non-binary patients. Um, I've got a couple of articles in the pipeline, um, from medical students, um, surrounding kind of LGBT healthcare and how that's been affected by COVID. Um, and some, there's another interesting piece about if we should be asking all our patients their sexuality um, as like a standard question. Mm. So I've got kind of a few things coming through. And and again, I think the BMJ is very much, you know, on the kind of forefront of things like this. Like I would say there's very much an awareness like in the editorial team that there are a lot of um, groups of, of people within society that we don't serve very well as doctors. Um, and obviously LGBTQ plus people are, are one of those um, mm. you know you only again you only have to look at like the evidence is right, is right mm. there you right um, so I think I mean like everything we, we probably need to do more um, yeah do you know of any good resources besides these articles coming up of charities or 
um, other articles that are written and um, or doctors in particular that our listeners can follow who talk about LGBTQ plus issues in healthcare? Um, this is really not an area that I know very much about. So um, I guess uh, I guess for me, like most most of my stuff comes from Twitter, right? So sure. um, just following like a really diverse range of people. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, and there's several. Um, you know, charities that are specifically around organisations that are specifically around um, LGBT, like doctors and medical students. Um, so there's a um, GLAD, which is the Association of LGBTQ plus um, doctors and dentists. I think they're mainly based um, around kind of UK doctors and dentists, um, but they're one kind of organisation that I know of. But I guess that's more on the side of. Um, like medical professionals rather than LGBT patients. I don't know if you know um, anything good for like people who kind of yeah provide resources for us to, to help us um, serve our LGBTQ patients. Yeah, Gender GP. I came across them um, a few weeks ago, and um, it's founded by a female GP who um, provides a lot of care, primary care to LGBTQ plus people and they're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. So I'll put GLAD and Gender GP in the show notes. Awesome. Fab. So speaking of the elephant in the room, uh, COVID, I'd love to hear a little bit about what's been going on with COVID and the BMJ and how they've had to respond to so much so quickly. And I also would love to hear a bit about um, the article around medical students' response to the pandemic um, that you wrote. As you mentioned, many ways that medical students have contributed to the pandemic, including working directly on the front line, um, social media advocacy and research. So tell us a little bit more about some of the specific projects um, and the work medical students have been carrying out, as well as what's been going on at the BMJ. Yeah, so I mean, as you can imagine, like uh, <laughs> the BMJ has been quite busy with COVID. I mean, like for the student section, especially, it's just me who kind of looks after all of the articles and stuff. Um, so it really has been like a bit of a, a balancing act of like juggling getting stuff out in a timely way for COVID. Um, you know, well, not like for COVID, <laughs> discussing COVID, um, and also like all of the um, kind of other articles that I already had in the pipeline, which have like become slightly stalled um, because we've been prioritising COVID stuff. And I think um, actually I wrote like quite a um, kind of meta article, which should be going um, out quite soon, uh, where I interviewed like the news team at the BMJ about like their experiences of, of covering COVID. So um, That's yeah. really cool, that kind of like internal, yeah. Yeah, so um, I think one of the things that they really noted is, like, it's really interesting for them because usually, like, all of the big national newspapers, like, they don't do that much health reporting, but now it's, like, the only story. So they have to really think about, like, what the BMJ is doing differently to, like, The Guardian, right, or, you know, like, the BBC. Um, So in terms of the article that um, myself and Florence wrote um, about... Yeah, what medical students have been doing in the to kind of response to COVID. Um, 
I think one of the reasons why I wanted to write that was because, you know, I had a lot of people wanting to talk about their experiences, which I really, really wanted to showcase that, but it's quite, it was going to be quite difficult for me to kind of commission every single person to write a full article, right? Because I just didn't have, I just don't really have the capacity to handle like 40 articles, you know? Um, so yeah, we wrote this this piece where we, we interviewed um, several people and we tried to find a sort of diverse range of um people who were doing different things um I think one of the the projects that particularly stuck out for me which um I um spoke to two of the leaders oh gosh I can't remember their names I've spoken to so many people recently um two of the leaders of a project that was um doing translation work mm-hmm. so um obviously we know that COVID um has poor outcomes in um black and other ethnic minority populations and they use like their language skills and the kind of connections that they had within their um their communities in south london to kind of translate all of these infographics for um into like loads of different languages and then circulating those um so they could really kind of get to the the communities that um you know perhaps aren't aren't reached quite so well with some of the other public health messaging that that has been put out around COVID and I just thought that was like insanely cool um and they were they were so so nice to talk to I spoke to them for about 45 minutes (laughs) unfortunately because of the nature of like writing up these things you only end up using like two quotes uh, which is really sad um but yeah I guess the other thing about that article is that we we're collecting rapid responses for it Mm. so um we are basically inviting people to share their experience of what they've been doing during COVID um, in the responses to that article. Um, And yeah, just to sort of be like a a repository and kind of like, I think in, in this case as well, much more so than any of the other articles I've wrote, I did feel very much a responsibility to sort of document this for, for the future, you know, for, for history, because there might be someone in 50 years who wants to know what medical students did um, during COVID and they might come to the BMJ, so. Good thinking, absolutely. And so to our audience, um, how can they find the article to give a rapid response if any of our medical students want to do that or junior doctors for that matter? Yeah, it's just it's just on um, BM, bmj.com. Um, under the student section all of our covid stuff is open access so you don't even need to you don't even need to log in okay that's fantastic i'll link that in the show notes and so what do you think the long-term impact will actually be when it comes to covid19 and medical education oh it's just an that's opinion a big, that's a big one as well you don't have as i know i'm asking big you questions. i'm stretching you you're an impressive lady <laughs> I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think from everything you've read, all the conversations you've had, how are students feeling, you know, how do they feel about virtual medicine online and, you know? I think, I mean, like everything, there's pros and cons to it, isn't there? Um, I think the value of virtual stuff is that often, you know, even like for my med school, when you're in clinical years, like they can send you two and a half hours away from London yeah so having virtual stuff is is really really good because it means that you know you don't have to travel around and and um like come back into London for like centralized teaching and stuff and I think it it probably does help with the kind of standardization of of teaching as well because you know I'm sure as as you know from like being Mm. in 
the clinical environment like so varied teaching, but like foundation teaching is so variable like when I was at Margate it was so good and then like other hospitals I've been at they barely get anything basically um so I think that there may be it may help with like standardization of some of the covering some of the curriculum like particularly for foundation doctors obviously I'm, I don't really know that much about you know more senior like people who are in training programs and things um but I think the the kind of overwhelming feeling that I get from my conversations with other medical students and this is not just via the BMJ like I've um I've worked on quite a few like education projects and things and I, I recently spoke at a um at a conference about medical education during COVID and um it's just the transparency and the communications like medical students I think are quite aware that and they're quite forgiving as well I think that you know we know that our clinical academics have often you know dropped a lot of their um educational work to go back into the clinical environment we know it's a I'm going to use the word which I hate unprecedented (laughs) um but it's it's just about telling us what's going on and you know I kind of think like I don't understand why there wasn't a plan with like specific trigger points for medical students right so we knew that there was going to be a respiratory like a respiratory disease pandemic at some point because there was going to be a flu pandemic if it wasn't coronavirus. So why do we not have like already a plan that says, okay, if hospital gets to, this is really simplistic and I'm just like spitballing here, but okay, if the capacity across the country in the hospital gets to X percent, we need to mobilise the final year medical students and this is the defined role that they're going to go into and we know what the trigger point is for them to be mobilized like into the workforce Mm. and then like just have like some sort of system like that I just don't really understand Mm. why that like kind of planning had not been done because that I mean I guess in hindsight it makes total sense but um yeah I just I think the transparency and the communication has been the main thing that people have found frustrating about um the way that covid has affected their medical education because it's just that uncertainty of sort of yeah knowing when you're going to be able to go back into placement um and obviously i appreciate that there's like regional and local variations sorry can you yeah I agree with you. Transparency is absolutely key. And I know from friends and other people I've spoken to at different medical schools, it is very frustrating, especially if you're an international student. You just don't really know what's going on, especially if you've got caring responsibilities. It's it's just all a bit of a palaver, really. And so how do you think that medical schools can support students who have been volunteering during the pandemic on the front line going forward? I mean, I think there probably needs to be like some like debrief systems and things like that I think a lot of people have found their their experiences volunteering really valuable um just uh plugging the BMJ again um I there's a recent piece on BMJ opinion um where Kramer uh talks about how valuable he's found his experience um volunteering during COVID um so I think that there is there's a lot of a lot of people have found a lot of positives to take away from the experiences that they've had. Um, so I think it's it's yeah I think well being support is going to be even more important and that's 
again like it's very easy to say that and not so easy to to put it into practice um but I think also there needs to be a recognition that people will have like different levels of anxiety about going Mm. back into placement um and I really think like this is the time where we need to like actually put our money where our mouth is when we say that we're gonna have you know individualized like holistic um kind of conversations with med students and and you know junior doctors who potentially maybe have been shielding um and are anxious about going back into the clinical environment because I know that a lot of people are and um yeah it needs to very much be like a conversation I think rather than just saying okay well you're going back now um I agree it all comes down to support and just having the conversation rather than you know, it being something that medical students bring to their educators, um, yeah, to the forefront of their educators' mind, it should already have been a thought. Yeah, and I think that often, you know, that people who are, you know, maybe have been clinical in the past or combined clinical work with education and might have spent a lot more time in the clinical environment in the last few months, you know, I, I think equally as medical students we probably need to have a little bit of understanding that they've you know um are probably trying their best (laughs) absolutely they've been pulled in every direction their parents many of them are parents too they've had to homeschool their kids it's just all been yeah very very taxing for everyone absolutely it's been crazy (laughs) it's been crazy anna crazy stuff and so on to something a bit different. As you know, here at NutriTank, we are on a mission to increase nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training. So I know you're not um, that familiar with this area, but being such a powerhouse in so many other areas and in the med ed world, I just wanted to find out from you what your experience has been around uh, nutrition and lifestyle medicine at your medical school if there has been any at all sure well, first of all can i say you're very flattering to me and this is not doing my ego any good <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i think i mean this is a conversation that i was actually having with someone quite recently um about how you know we kind of learn about like vitamins and minerals and stuff for like an hour in our kind of preclinical. um preclinical lectures and stuff and and then it's not talked about that much and I think the other thing that um this person who was having this conversation with was saying was that like she's not very confident like communicating these kind of things to patients and um I guess from like looking at the work that you do like that's kind of part of um part of what your your team is interested in um and I think that's it I think it's a really good point because um you know, so many patients will be interested in, in accessing, accessing that kind of information um, from their clinician. Um, but I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, like systemic problems. Um, I think it's quite easy for us to kind of conceptualize like a poor lifestyle as being because of someone's individual choices. Mm. And actually it's like way, way more than that and often people are you know kind of boxed into making those choices because of of the circumstances that they find themselves in and I think that's something that I think that's something that you know it's just not it's not something that I have ever been taught at medical school um I think there's still very much an attitude amongst 
medics and potentially even doctors of you know well you're you're overweight because you have you've made poor choices about your food or poor choices about your exercise um and I remember reading about um a close family member of mine had bariatric surgery and and at the time I was I was reading about it and about the evidence base for it and the evidence base for it is so good um and we just don't seem to offer it so much as an option and like potentially that's because of like stigma around it because we kind of think oh actually you know this is the quote-unquote easy way out of um you know getting you know losing weight and improving your health kind of that way um so I think it I think it's really interesting um and like a lot of other things it's I think it's a lot more nuanced than we ever get presented Mm. with it at med school um I think that's true of so many things and I don't think this is like not to say that it's the fault necessarily of the medical schools I think they have to deliver such an enormous amount of content in such a short space of time um but yeah there's definitely Mm. a level of like systemic problems with the way that we think about and access information about lifestyle and um yeah it's something I've actually since I mean obviously since you like invited me to come and talk to you I've been thinking about it a bit more it's not something I really necessarily thought about that much before Mm. um but yeah it's it's a really interesting topic yeah and um yeah you've mentioned some really important things and I guess it comes back to what we were saying earlier if you're taught a fact like um, Afro-Caribbean women are at five times uh, greater mortality uh, within um, delivery when it comes to OBS and gynae. Why? And, you know, if we think about how that can translate into other areas of medical education when we're just taught facts that, you know, those who have, who come from a lower socioeconomic background have poorer diet um, and lifestyle, higher rates of alcoholism, smoking, and um, obesity. Why don't we actually unpack those facts that, that, that are delivered to us and actually think about the contributing factors um, and you know how we as future clinicians can learn the art of motivational interviewing to talk to people who come from all different backgrounds, who have different reasons for their current metabolic health and not to actually be in a situation where you're that clinician who's putting individual blame on that um, overweight patient sat in front of you, but you're actually having that understanding of their background, of their living situation, if they're fast food trains that fast food chains that are just completely pervasive in their living area you know you have to really have a much broader understanding rather than just take everything as a fact you have to understand how the food system food advertising um lack of medical education around diet lifestyle and how it all feeds into that patient sat in front of you and you only have to look like you do not have to look very hard to find you know patients being extremely distressed by the way that their clinicians have spoken to them about lifestyle and you know we just need to do better like I think so many so many of the things we've spoken about this morning it's just it it starts to become quite frustrating doesn't it because you think we just need to do better and I wonder if and this is like an extremely cynical thing to say probably um 
I wonder if, you know, sometimes as kind of people who are in medicine, we kind of think like, oh, well, you know, I'm a medical student, so obviously I'm a good person. Um, and I've definitely fallen into this trap before. Um, you're like, oh, I'm in medicine, like it's very altruistic and all of this. And actually, you, you need to do more than that. Um, I don't know if anyone, this is a very niche reference, but I don't know if anyone, if you've ever read a book called How to Be Good by Nick Hornby. No. So it's basically about this woman mm. who's a GP and um, this is very much it, it's very much her reflecting on the fact that she's she's done a lot of kind of stuff that might objectively be considered bad in her life but she's always been like I'm I'm a doctor and I help people so I'm a good pe- I'm a good person and I read that earlier this year and I was like oh my god that is so true like we definitely paper over or at least I personally like paper over a lot of my kind of bad um like things that I should be doing better just by saying like oh I'm a med student so I'm automatically a good person you're no I mean that's thank you for bringing that that's really interesting and it just goes back to not doing things lip service and not hiding behind a good identity that has like good connotations um associated with it it's about doing the work not just talking about it or hiding behind your title yeah, and it's really hard. It is hard, isn't it, to like think of yourself as like not being a good person. I mean, it's um, nuanced, like you say. It's completely <laughs> nuanced. You know, we we all can do better in certain aspects. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so, just in a similar vein around uh, nutrition, lifestyle, and preventative healthcare, um, I had the pleasure of listening to Fiona Godley. Um, the editor-in-chief of the BMJ when she came to talk in Bristol in my second year she gave a talk around too much medicine um so the issues around overdiagnosis and polypharmacy and um so I then went on to read a lot of the articles that the BMJ brought up in I uh, brought out sorry in the too much medicine campaign so I just wanted to um ask you if you can elaborate on this coming from a medical student and someone who is working at the BMJ um what you think about the concept of too much medicine and um if you've had any thoughts around it yeah so actually we um we spoke a little bit about this in one of the recent episodes of um sharp scratch about um we spoke about evidence-based medicine basically but it was it was one of the things that we touched on was this whole area of overdiagnosis and too much medicine is actually one of the bmj's campaigns so there's there's several things that the bmj um sort of as a company is like passionate about and they're called our campaigns and there's things like patient and public partnership um climate change and divestment well-being and, and, and too much medicine is one of them and i think it was something that i never really had that much of a grasp of until I actually came to the BMJ and I started looking at and praising evidence a lot more kind of in my day-to-day life and it was that was something we we spoke about on Sharp Scratch was um the fact that like a yearly health check might not actually be the best thing for you like in terms of the actual evidence base for it and again I think I think I think there's two things um firstly I think our instinct is always to do something like it's definitely definitely would always be my instinct would be to do something and not just you know leave something even if that is actually the best thing to do when you Mm. look at the evidence and I think um that's often tricky for when you're accessing care as well you know you want you do want something to to be done if you've got 
a, a distressing symptom. Um, so I think that's that's part of it. And I think the other kind of thing to think about is um, like conflicts of interest in evidence and stuff. Um, which again, like, it's not something that I really had a had that much of a grasp of before I came to to the BMJ. But um, yeah, it's so important to look at like why research is being done um, and how that affects what it says. And I think this is probably more. I mean, it's pervasive in the whole of medicine, right? Um, but particularly in like lifestyle and, and nutrition, which everyone is like everyone scrabbles on these these big articles that come out and then recently there was one um actually in the bmj recently about like vegetarians vegans and meat eaters and like their risk of stroke and it was like cited like so many times Mm. i think people are very people are very keen on on this research that kind of is going to tell you okay this is exactly what diet i need to eat Mm. in order to like quote-unquote healthy Mm. um and uh yes i think it can be quite complicated to translate that into actual like simple kind of guidance for people um i've kind of gone off topic from what you were saying about um, no but it's fine because i mean that's the work that we're kind of trying to do and um yeah we've been quite successful in doing so that we're trying to create an environment through our Nutritank branches within each medical school where students are actually taught around how to critically appraise um, the evidence around different diets and um, you know different nutrition invent- interventions and to not just always sit in one camp and kind of through um, dietitian-led education learn the art of motivational interviewing whereby you can really try and translate what's meaningful to the patient sat in front of you um you know to kind of give them personalized information rather than blanket nutrition and uh, diet and lifestyle advice so i guess it's really important that we're looking at the nuance uh within all uh these different diets whether it's vegetarianism or veganism um or you know um mediterranean diet meat eating whatever and so I, I really do believe it's important uh, that students are taught around uh, diet and lifestyle advice and they're taught enough depth of information that they can have a grasp on the nuance and be able to address the issues that patients come in with. And, you know, it's all linked to this too much medicine um, concept because when patients come in and say they've got kind of non-specific fatigue and um, they're just not feeling as kind of um, energetic as they once were and um, their mood's a little bit low but nothing it's all kind of subclinical you know all kind of like non-specific subclinical and um, you know it's why aren't you asking them about their diet lifestyle and sleep because it, you can't just hand them a prescription even though that's what they might want they might want you to hand them a pharmaceutical prescription but when it's subclinical and something can be done via diet and lifestyle interventions clinicians need to be in a position where they actually have those skills that they're taught at medical school through consultation skills and also through theoretical teaching um 
learning the evidence base um, within all the different specialties around nutrition interventions, they need to be able to uh, feel comfortable to say to the patient, look, I'm not going to give you a prescription for a statin or for a sleeping pill, anything like that. Like That is maybe what you want, but we can really work together and you can try and make these small lifestyle changes and modifications and then you're taking matters into your own hands. It's about kind of like empowerment and not uh, putting too much emphasis on something man-made when you can perhaps, not everyone can, I do completely appreciate there's so many barriers towards design lifestyle modification, but for many, you know, if they feel like they can um, actually do it because the doctor is telling them that it's possible and they've had experience in case studies with other patients who've done it, then, you know, it is something that needs to be more mainstream. Yeah, and just to say that the, the BMJ has just put out um, kind of part two of their Food for Thought collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a collection of articles um, and there's some there's been some kind of accompanying panel discussions and, and lectures over the last couple of days, which I believe may be available um, after the fact. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that the, the BMJ has done. Um, talking about you know nutrition research um and a lot of the problems um that there are within it particularly amongst conflicts of interest um so that's something that if people if people are interested in that they should definitely check check out the food for thought collection absolutely um and we're gonna the food for thought conference um virtual conference we got sent an email about it it's on the 30th of june yes it's over the next couple of days that's what we're saying yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're there already and so just wrapping up anna could you give our students who may be listening some top tips when it comes to healthcare journalism and just writing in general you know maybe just for yourself <laughs> yeah if you like um <laughs> this is probably not what people necessarily want to hear but um please read um, I think sometimes I go out into um, and I do these outreach talks in medical schools, which I absolutely love doing. Like, I love talking to, to other med students about what's kind of been going on um, in their like local area and stuff because I think it's really interesting how different it can be um, in different places. But um, I usually start my workshops off by asking everyone to tell me something that they've read recently that they've enjoyed doesn't have to be medical um and usually people look at me blankly and I say a book a fiction um I uh, if you want to be a good writer you have to read um and yeah it does take time but just read anything like I'm not saying you need to read like academic paper after academic paper I have probably learned more about writing by reading poetry and fiction than I have by reading academic writing um but definitely and particularly if you want to write for a specific publication so if you wanted to write something for the student section in the BMJ please do have a look at, at some of the stuff that we've done previously because um, you'd be surprised how obvious it is when people people haven't done that um, so that would be my first tip for writing um, the other the other thing I would say is is write um, so you don't have to write specifically to get published um, you can write just because you enjoy it or you can write to, to improve mm. your skills and um, honestly I've got a folder on my Google Drive of like stuff that I've written that will never see the light of day <laughs> but you know it's 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 all good experience and like I was saying at the beginning you know I've I've written like loads of really random stuff um, and it all it all helps um, yeah 
it all helps. So I would say, yeah, my top my top two tips would be if you want to write um, or be in healthcare journalism, please read and write, which is probably not um, probably not massively helpful. No, it um, is because it's from the horse's mouth. It is. You're doing it and that's what works for you. It, it might not work for everyone, but it's, it's a very good place to start. Yeah. And I mean, there are you can buy books and stuff about academic writing, you know, if you're there was a really, really good book um, that I read called Stylish Academic Writing by Helen Sword. Um, and that was a, I found that really interesting. She was talking about like how kind of academics in different fields write and, and what is the kind of basis of a, of a good sentence and things like that. So there's plenty mm. of theoretical things out there. Um, and, you know, you can do online courses. And, and if you really wanted to, you know, get into journalism stuff, you can go to the national council of training journalists and, and do modules on their website um but really a lot of it does come down to to just um yeah. just getting your head down and, and doing it um for sure yeah and so just for some final fun questions uh what are your favorite podcasts um which hosts do you look up to the most so this is really funny because i actually am not that into podcasts um i usually only listen to them when i'm running um but i really like off menu i don't know if you've listened to that no i haven't listened to it's, it it's it's um like they basically have guests on and they talk about like what their favorite um like starter main course dessert and drink is so you might like it because it's about food do you know what exactly i'm gonna listen to that this afternoon and do you know what's funny because that's my next question to you on every nutri tank uh, nourish your mind episode we ask all our guests to say uh what their favorite starter <laughs> main and dessert is as if it was their last ever supper so oh you've kind of done that yourself go on yeah this well i was dreading this question actually because i'm really like so um I don't know whether this is going to be a controversial statement, but um, I'm, I'm a vegan uh, <laughs> and I love carbs. So I think genuinely my last meal would just be like bread, like some really nice breads. Any dessert, any main? Um, <laughs> um, actually, do you, do you know, I would have, I would have breads and then I would have an ice lolly. A rocket lolly. Love that. Up. Simple <laughs> and delicious. And so, Anna, how can people find you and your work online? You're a bit of a tweeter, aren't you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter um, at A underscore C underscore Harvey. Um, quite, quite simple. Um, and obviously, you can follow like BMJ Student on um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We've got our own kind of feeds that are separate to the BMJ, so they're specifically targeted towards students um and yeah i think that's it actually i don't think i am also on linkedin but i find it a bit confusing that's all right <laughs> twitter it is well thank you so much for coming on anna it's been wonderful chatting to someone who i feel i resonate with so much with your medical humanities interest and healthcare journalism so yeah thank you for coming on no thank you it's been it's been weird to kind of be like the other side of the mic but very nice um people love talking about themselves and i'm no exception so thank <laughs> you very much for for giving me that opportunity no probs
Wow, another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.